We've got a changing cast of characters on Today in Ohio this week. Laura Johnston's off for the week. Layla Tassi is off until Friday. So, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer on this Monday features me, Chris Quinn, along with our State House Bureau Chief, Rick Ruan, reporter Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin, member of the editorial board. Welcome. This is going to be interesting. New faces, new people talking. Let's begin. Rick, you go first. We've seen too many news stories to count about Ohio's Jim Jordan in the past couple of months, based on all the subpoenas he has issued and hearings he has held. Reporter Sabrina Eaton put it all into perspective over the weekend by counting it up. Rick, what are the stats? This was a good piece. So, uh, in his first two months as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and overseeing this new subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, Jim Jordan has had 12 hearings, issued 20 subpoenas, sent 149 letters, conducted eight transcribed interviews, obtained 113,980 pages of documents, and put out two reports. (laughs) So if that sounds like a lot, I'm sure Sabrina would agree. I mean, she's been following Jordan closely in Washington since Republicans won control of the House of Representatives and frankly, even before that. But uh, some of our audience will probably remember her dispatches earlier this year from Yuma, Arizona, where she traveled with a Jordan-led convoy that, among other things, unsuccessfully tried to observe some illegal border crossings. So far, it's fair to say there isn't a lot of policy making that's happened out of Jordan's committee, though that might be by design. Uh, Jordan gave Sabrina a pretty telling quote when she noted uh, the Center for Legislative Effectiveness at Vanderbilt University and the University of Virginia ranked him the 217th most effective Republican (laughs) in the House over the past two years. He basically said that he didn't come to Congress to make more laws. Uh, He came to Congress to reduce legislation and taxes on American families and the American people. So. Uh, you know, for his part, Jordan says this isn't all just theater. He has some policies he wants to pursue. Uh, immigration is one to watch. He says he's also prioritizing inflation, protecting Americans' rights and liberties, and weaponization of the federal government. Uh, but don't look for many of his ideas to become law, at least in the next two years, even if he gets some real buy-in in the House. Of course, Democrats control the Senate and the White House, so uh, not going to find a favorable audience over there. I give him credit for talking to Sabrina. He's not a big fan of the media. I don't think he's a big fan of us. We've been merciless in pointing out some of the things he does. But he he was game, and he gave her a good interview. It is interesting, the whole idea of rating legislators based on legislation they get passed. That, that seems like it's almost a liberal bias because Republicans think we have too many laws. So rating them on getting more laws passed is unfair. He's right. He doesn't want more laws. He wants fewer laws. He's all about getting rid of regulations. Of course, when you do that, you have things like train crashes in East Palestine. But it was a, it's, it's an interesting view that I don't want to pass more laws. You're right. He's not going to pass any laws. I don't know. I still, there's a lot of theater here. It's clearly a lot of theater, but he did speak pretty clearly to Sabrina about his specific mission in D.C., Sure. And I think that the the theater is um, 
the, there's some purpose behind the theater, right? I mean, he's uh, trying to speak to um, a, a Republican base through uh, some of that theater. Um, he He's very much kind of stayed on point with a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the hearings around the uh, weaponization of the, the government have uh, focused on, uh, you know, local school boards uh, where um, he says that uh, parents have been investigated just for voicing their First Amendment rights. Um, he's had the, the hearings on immigration at the border in uh, Yuma, Arizona. Um, there was this uh, fight over the Pledge of Allegiance at the, the very first one of these uh, committee hearings, which is kind of a, a culture war sort of thing. So um, he, he's really kind of leaning into uh, the the things that uh, the people who put him in Congress uh, likely want him to. It does to. seem like a lot of what he's doing is defense of Donald Trump. And he's a big time Trump loyalist. Absolutely. With Trump in the hot seat now with the criminal investigations. He's a, Jordan is a regular on Fox News defending the former president. So this stage gives him the chance to do a lot of work on behalf of the former president. You are listening to Today in Ohio. For those of us who believe in the coronavirus vaccine, we're now six months past our last shots or more. Previously, that meant it was time to get another booster. Lisa, what's the word this time around from the federal government? Well, right now, the Food and Drug Administration says that only one booster dose of the bivalent is currently authorized for use. But they continue to monitor the COVID situation both here in the United States and around the world. The Ohio Department of Health is doing the same. Uh, Aaron Elzaz with the Cuyahoga Board of Health said it's a hot topic, especially with their older and immune compromised patients who are asking for another booster. But she says if you've already received the bivalent booster, that's all all they can legally provide right now. Uh, Dr. Stephen Gordon, who's the infectious disease chair at Cleveland Clinic, he says we don't have any guidance on whether we should give a second bivalent booster six months after the first. We don't know whether it will benefit and we don't want to give something if it's not effective. But other countries are already doing it. Canada and the UK, are, health officials are offering but not recommending boosters for elderly and immunocompromised patients six months after their last bivalent booster. But the FDA is moving towards more of a flu kind of schedule. They're recommending an annual fall vaccination for COVID, similar to the flu. But this is only if you've already been vaxxed and boosted. So if you are unvaccinated, you will still need the two initial doses of the original drug followed by a bivalent booster two months later. Yeah, I don't I don't quite get it. Why the, the delay? The coronavirus immunity wears off. And it's part of the problem with coronaviruses is the human body forgets, as Courtney could probably speak to. So so every time you've gotten that booster in the past, the, the science has shown it has boosted your immunity again. I'm not sure why they say, well, we don't know what the result would be of another one when it always has, but it's left a lot of people scared. And I read a story, I can't remember where it was, about all the tricks people are using it to get it, even though they're mm -hmm. not supposed to. They're going to different pharmacies and playing all sorts of games mm -hmm. to get the extra booster, which nobody is recommending. It just seems odd that the government won't speak to it. If they, if they say... We're not going to recommend it. We're going to wait till the fall. Okay, fine. 
but they're leaving it up in the air. And for people that are now six and seven months beyond, they're, they're worried. We're hearing from them. Yeah, but I don't think they're leaving it up in the air. I think what they're trying to do is move to an annual vaccination schedule, and this is the way to do it. You know, but in Ohio, you know, the number of people in Ohio that have the bivalent booster is only at 16%. I think it's odd that they're saying, okay, you really need to start with the original regimen. I thought that was kind of odd. So you get the one shot and you get another like 21 days later and then the booster. I would just think that the fall you know, shot would be best, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was odd too because the bivalent has the latest or the, the more recent varieties of COVID in it, but who knows? I, I just, it's, it's, it's odd. It's the first time in two years. It's like, isn't it time? And no, it is not. So you might have to wait till fall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had a serious possibility of a tornado in Cuyahoga County last week, which raised the question about how common the phenomenon is. We missed it last week, didn't have one, but now we know how common they are. Right, Courtney? Yeah, our data reporter, Zach Smith, he dove into the numbers here and gave us kind of a look at what tornadoes have been like in in Cuyahoga County in recent history. And, you know, we found that the last one here was in 2019. It was out by Oakwood. And generally, that's the opposite corner of the county where we find them. So what Zach found was that most of the tornadoes we've had in Cuyahoga County have mostly been out in the suburbs, and most of them have have kind of centered around the southwest corner of the county near Hopkins Airport. And, and there have been 16 tornadoes inside Cuyahoga County since 1950, Zach found. By far, the worst one was a really long time ago on June 8th, 1953. That was the third year in a row a tornado had hit here. And at that time, it was it was deemed an F4 tornado. Six people died, 300 people injured out by Berea, North Olmstead. Is there any thought as to why we don't get nearly as many as you see in other places in the country. Is there any thought that the Great Lakes might have some tempering influence? Absolutely. I found this part of it absolutely fascinating. The thought goes that the weather above Lake Erie kind of holds tornadoes off. The the air masses and the systems on the lake kind of rebuff and, and potentially, it sounds like, keep the tornadoes at bay close to the lakeshore. You know, Zach in his story, though, also noted that geography likely or probably has something to do with it, too. You know, we've got the heights and the hills, and it's a little different as you move further west into the more plains kind of corners of the state. We we, we have the geography that helps insulate us as well, and, and that kind of bore out in the numbers, too. When he was looking around the greater Cleveland area, he found that Cuyahoga County was in the middle of the pack as you as you move west into those more flatter areas of Greater Cleveland. He found that Lorraine and Medina County topped the list. In Lorraine, it had it's had thirty one tornadoes since nineteen fifty, and and then even as you move further west from Lorraine to bordering Huron County, that's when you really start getting into the heart of of tornado country in that flatter land. Yeah, when you drive down Cedar Hill, it feels like you're entering the plains. Of course, Lisa (laughs) knows we pay for those heights in the winter (laughs) when that moisture comes and hits the heights and drops pounds of snow, although not this past winter. Good story. It's on clean.com. Check it out. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. 
Governor Mike DeWine on Friday signed an executive order that should make life a lot easier for those who adopt children. Rick, what does the order do? So the governor's order launches a program that offers grants worth $10,000 to $20,000 for parents who have adopted children this year. Uh, The order is piggybacking on some new legislation that the governor signed earlier this year. So that means that those adopting any non-stepchild can pursue a one-time $10,000 grant. Uh, And then there's also $15,000 available for parents who offer foster care to a child and then adopt them and $20,000 for parents who adopt a child with special needs. The program is targeting a pretty specific area of need in Ohio. There's this gap that exists between the number of children in the foster care system and the number of potential adoptive parents who are looking to expand their families. So the idea is that a financial incentive might encourage them to kind of take that plunge uh, and then defray some of the associated costs. Uh, Adoptive families sometimes face thousands of dollars in legal expenses. uh, And that doesn't really even get into the cost of raising a child, uh, which uh, is very high. Uh, Applications are available at adoptiongrant.ohio.gov. And anyone who's really interested in that can get the details about everything that's needed to apply at that website. All right. So you're the state house and politics editor. I think you have the best chance of understanding this. I hope so. Anyway, why did it take an executive order? I thought that he was planning to put this money into the budget and that it would come through that process. Why did he have to put out an executive order and where does he get the power to do that? So that, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, I I don't specifically know the answer to why he had to do this in executive order. It could have really been uh, a question of timing. Uh, so the the budget is right now working its way through um, the the kind of legislative hoops that it has to go through. Uh, it's still in the House right now, uh, working its way through committees. Uh, so the way the budget works is the the governor introduces it. It goes to the House. It's debated and changed in the House. Uh, once the House is done with it, it goes to the Senate where they debate and change it in the Senate. And then the two sides, the House and the Senate, have to come together and uh, reconcile the differences between them. Then it goes to the governor's desk and the governor can uh, line item veto uh, portions of it that he doesn't like, uh, but then he ultimately has to sign it. That process is going to stretch into June. And so, uh, you know, ha- we're halfway through the year at that oh, point. It's possible that he wanted to get this going a lot sooner than that to um, try to get that enticement out there um, to, you know, uh, for a potential somebody who might be thinking about adopting a child, it, it, but they're worried about the cost. Uh, they know that this grant program is And there. maybe he does know from the lawmakers, the leaders in the House and the Senate that they're going to fund this and have agreed go ahead get it started and that's why he did it entirely possible yes okay interesting you're listening to today in ohio the investigation that has slammed a bunch of east cleveland police officers with criminal charges had a notorious figure as an informant who was it how did he help lisa 
He is George Michael Riley, and he's the owner of the notorious Arco Recycling Center on Noble Road in East Cleveland. He was identified as a confidential source in a bribery case against two of the dozen or so East Cleveland police officers that have been indicted. They were officers Von Harris and DeMarco Johnson. So many of us remember that, you know, that Arco Recycling Center caught fire and burned for a week in 2017. So uh, after that, I guess he got in contact contact with the FBI, but he met with these two officers, Harris and Johnson, the next summer, and he paid them to file a false police report to help him to commit insurance fraud over this fire. So, you know, he was wired up apparently because photos and audio were taken of his meetings with these officers, but he was known only as third party. But the revelation that it was Riley came out in a court filing. So Johnson's attorney, Ali Hubbard, is seeking to withdraw Johnson's January guilty plea for one count of bribery. And this uh, lawyer was hired right before his sentencing. And then there's a prosecutor motion to keep the protection order on Riley's address in place because Hibbard says, well, now we've ID'd Riley. I want him to be subpoenaed so he can testify. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it is. But there was an audio from one of the meetings in June 2018 of the third party, now known to be Riley, counting out money to Officer Johnson and saying, are you sure that this false report won't be detected? Yeah, it's a it's kind of an amazing yarn when you think about it. That dump was such a scandal. It would only happen in East mm-hmm. Cleveland. They claimed they were doing recycling, but it was just a massive dump that was dangerous and toxic, and there were homes all around it. And and separately, East Cleveland's had the scandal with the police, which has just been unbelievable. The percentage of that department that isn't been under indictment. Who knew that these two would end up being tied together? It, it's it's appropriate. It's entirely appropriate. The bad guy bribed the police. But wow, the fact that uh, the FBI used him. Very interesting development. And this only came out in court records, right? There was something released in the court papers. Correct. Yeah, there were filings both by Johnson's attorney who wanted to withdraw the guilty plea, and then the prosecutors are trying to keep that protection order intact on Riley. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. NOACA, the regional planning agency, has a controversy on its hands with some board members not wanting to call climate change climate change. This is one of those ridiculous stories where a small group of people are are using pressure to do something completely preposterous and pretend that the climate isn't changing. How's this all going to play out, Courtney, as the agency seeks grants to deal with climate change? Yeah, we're we're seeing this kind of unfurl as as the debate continues on that that body NOACA and but what what seems to be clear now a handful of weeks out over this bruaha over the climate change language it's clear that members of NOACA even if they are doubting climate science don't want to lose out on the money that comes with grants and things meant to combat, you know, local air quality and water quality. So let me explain it this way. We heard from a Lake County Commissioner, John Plechnik. He's a member of NOACA's Finance and Audit Committee. He doesn't believe the science is clear here around climate change. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he came out saying... Oh. He's not going to vote against potentially millions of dollars in grants to clean up Lake Erie, to help clean up air. And this was his quote. He said, so I will vote for this no matter what we name it. 
but I want to say for the record, I believe in God, not Captain Planet. So yeah, it's un- it's unbelievable. <laughs> so so what happened was they had this big discussion to put together their policy. And after it went through the final committee before it goes to the overall board, it said climate change throughout. And then when the final board got together to vote on it, all the references to climate change were taken out with, and they put in some goofy euphemism and board members were aghast. They're like, that, that can't stand. So there, there was a motion to restore it all. And there was an overwhelming vote. I do think seven people, though, voted against, including the words climate change, which is just mm. cuckoo. These are these are officials determining policy in Northeast Ohio. And they're off in the in the wild saying, you know, there is no climate change. It's just God's rule. Right. And and you see, you know, reasonable stances from from Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, from Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronane. They were not down with this with this move. Right. The yanking of the climate language. They sent a pretty strongly worded letter to Noaka. And we saw some of the fallout play out at this Friday meeting when when Noaka's committees were were looking to to reapprove this this overall work plan. You know, Ronane actually, he abstained from voting as, as a member of one of the committees just to make a point that that the the, the, the toying with the climate language was not going to fly. The climate, climate policy has been a, a big piece of his focus as county executive, and, and they're not down to play games, it appears. You know, and Ronane even, he wouldn't tell our reporter, Pete Krause, which way he was going to vote on this final plan, just because there's so much consternation about how this change got there and and what this climate denial could mean for the board overall. Was there any language in there about a flat earth or that there is no evolution? It's all creationism. I guess that's the upside if we didn't get to that point. No. Just staggering that we have people serving in such an important position that are just say, I don't believe in science. I don't believe in science. And the, the simple part is they're they're still they still want the money. So so why yeah. not just talk about it openly? I'll vote know? for it, whatever you call it, but it's not climate change. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is an emerging strategy for increasing the number of candidates for police officer positions with departments across the state unable to fill their ranks? Rick? So a bill that's circulating in the state legislature right now, actually it's two bills. There's one in each uh, chamber right now, uh, but they seek to lower the state mandated minimum age to become a police officer at many law enforcement agencies from 21 to 18. So the, the idea has driven a bit of a wedge between the groups interested in solving what they describe as a widespread hiring shortage spurred by early retirements and resignations. Uh, advocates for the policy say that a lot of police departments already do this and that it could help with the officer shortages. But uh, the critics, including law enforcement officers themselves, say it's a bad idea because uh, teenagers lack the emotional and mental capacity to handle the job. Uh, about a dozen other states already allow this. Um, so Ohio uh, would uh, join a relatively small group. Um 
so what's a little bit unclear here is who this would apply to. So the what we're being told is the bill would apply to some cities and townships, specifically those that follow state civil service rules. That means it wouldn't affect uh, really the biggest departments, including Cleveland, because they already have their own civil service rules in their local charters. And Cleveland only hires officers starting at age 21. So an interesting kind of lingering question here is how many departments is this really going to affect? If you take out the big cities and townships that already have their own civil service rules, you drop county sheriffs and villages that are already are allowed to hire 18 year olds. It's really unclear just how many are left. Another state law that this change wouldn't affect dictates that the state highway patrol can't hire anyone under age 21 to be a state trooper. So one of the bill sponsors, uh, state rep Josh Williams, he's from the Toledo area, he's a Republican, uh, said the change would at least give a uniform standard for all departments in Ohio that they can hire someone once they turn 18. And at the end of the day, it's really still going to be up to the locals if they want to hire someone that young. The bill is currently written, doesn't obligate them to do so. So it's up to the locals. Seems awfully young to be given somebody a badge and a gun. They're not allowed to drink for three more years, but they'd have a badge and a gun. I do understand those who are questioning the, the wisdom of that. We've seen police in tense situations do ugly things and those three years from 18 to 21 do have a lot of brain development it's an interesting debate because all the departments are are lacking enough officers yeah and you know you talk about those three years and the the brain development that that happens there that three-year gap can also uh present a challenge for police recruiting because between age 18 and 21 somebody who otherwise might have decided to become a police officer at age 18 might find uh, a new career that um, they're pursuing instead uh, they also might find themselves in trouble in some way that uh, would preclude them from becoming a police officer in the future if they have some sort of charge that uh, would would keep them uh, out of uh, an academy so uh, it's a uh, sort of a tough nut to crack, but, um, uh, obviously, um, there, there's some concern, uh, around giving an 18 year old a badge. And a Interesting though. You're right. That if they can't get a job for those three years, they go out of the possible candidate pool at 21. Good story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to today in Ohio. What is the value to the economy of Cleveland's big three sport teams? And where does that rank Cleveland nationally, Lisa? This comes from a gambling aggregator, but it does seem like it's based on real numbers. Yeah, this data comes to us from OLBG Tipsters Sports Betting Company. And so combined, the Cavaliers, the Guardians, and the Browns brought $1.1 billion in revenue to the greater Cleveland area last year. If you break it down by team, the Browns, even though they have the fewest games, made the most money. So the Browns brought in $510 million, and that's despite having no playoff games and only a few home games. Uh, Next was the Cavaliers at $325 million. Um, the Guardians last year had a playoff appearance, and they think that that helped, but their uh, revenue last year was $267 million. So that puts Cleveland at number 10 nationally. Number one is New York City at $1.9 billion, followed by Chicago, LA, Arlington, Texas, where the Cowboys and the Rangers play, and then uh, Philadelphia was number five, and Houston was number six at $1.3 billion. 
It's interesting that it's in inverse proportion to the number of games. The Browns right. have the fewest games. The Cavs have the middle number of games, and the Guardians have the most. And yet they make less money. It's uh, that that's hard to understand because that brings all those people into town regularly. I don't mm-hmm. quite understand how that works. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've seen multiple Northeast Ohio golf courses get converted into parks in recent years. Now, Tanglewood National Golf Club near Chagrin Falls is up for sale. Courtney, might it become a park? Well, that's a good question. I will say that the current owner wants it to remain a golf course, so there's some desire for it not to go in that direction. But we'll have to see how it plays out. You know, reporter Megan Sims told us about this this Bainbridge Township golf course. It's listed at a price of $2.2 million. And it's been under the management of an LLC, Birmingham Associates, for 14 years. But there's some weird history with the sale of the golf course going on. So back about a decade ago in 2012, the Homeowners Association of of the surrounding neighborhood, they reached an agreement to buy the golf course. And and they they took it over from Birmingham Associates, the ownership, for $1 million back then. And, and, And the association did that to prevent future unwanted development. I don't know if that would include your idea of, of converting it back to a park, but we've got some some limits here and some desire for it to stay a golf course. The The Homeowners Association got into a long-term lease with Birmingham, and, and now the owners of Birmingham want to sell the management of the club and the improvements they made to the land so they can get out of the business and retire. The the ones that have converted to parks, they're, they're in various stages of, of development, but the one in Jaga County is looking and feeling less and less like a golf course every year. I go out there to, to walk our dog on occasion, and I'm surprised at how quickly that's becoming much more natural. Acacia is, what, 10 years down the road from when it when it was converted and it's slowly coming along, providing that extra park space just is a wonderful way to deal with this land. I'm surprised that the homeowners wouldn't want that. It just seems well, you want more houses. I mean, well, but if they're offering it up for sale and they're getting real estate interest from out of state, they ain't going to build, keep it a park. I mean, come on. I, I honestly think that whoever they sell it to is not going to, because they, you know, they want to make money on their purchase. Yeah. And so I don't see it becoming a park. I don't see it becoming, you know, staying a golf course, quite frankly. And like, so it'll be commercial or residential development. Oh, yeah. Damn. Why else would out of state realtors be, you know, people be interested in that? We, we we did learn that, that like you said, there is out-of-state interest here. So the, the person managing the sale of this property told Megan that there's buyers potentially out there from California, New York, and potentially some local interest, more Midwest from Ohio and Michigan, claimed that there was interest elsewhere all over the world. But, you know, he really touted it as as, as generating that interest because it's, you know, Cleveland area but then also Chagrin Falls, cute town. The demographics of that town are, are drawing some eyeballs. The The facility has a, a banquet hall, a grand ballroom that holds weddings. Big renovations occurred twice in the past decade. So I think they have an asset here that will be of interest. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for Monday. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow talking about the news.